This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. How can we define comparative education? That question has long vexed scholars in the field. My guest today is Angela Little, who has spent her entire career in comparative education and has wrestled with this very question. For me, comparative education is about extending the boundaries of our knowledge about education, moving it beyond national systems of education. It's about making something that appears to be rather unfamiliar, studying it, making it familiar, and in the process of making it familiar, possibly making what originally was familiar, making that rather strange. Angela argues that it is best to define the field through shared action rather than agreed upon definitions, and talks about the challenges of being an academic slash practitioner. She also discusses the recent role that Southern theory plays in the field of comparative education. I think some of the language of the those who call for Southern theory and a counter-hegemony needs to be considered carefully if we are to move towards a comparative and international education field which is truly inclusive. There's a certain danger that what is being called the Northern hegemony, a certain danger that the call is to replace it with a Southern hegemony. Angela Little is Professor Emerita at the University College London, Institute of Education, University of London. Angela Little, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. So let's talk about the field of comparative education, which we both are somehow members of. Uh, Many people have a hard time even defining what it means. What is comparative? What is education? At one point, we included international into the name of the field, so comparative and international education. What's your take? What is comparative education as a field? Okay, well, this is not going to be a short answer. (laughs) That's okay. For me, comparative education is about extending the boundaries of our knowledge about education, moving it beyond national systems of education. Um, It's about making something that appears to be rather unfamiliar, studying it, making it familiar, and in the process of making it familiar, possibly making what originally was familiar, making that rather strange, so that one can see for example, two education systems from both sides, as it were. Um, I know that from my own experience, my early teaching experience in Nigeria was very, very uh, informative in this sense. I wasn't a uh, a student of comparative education at that time. Um, I suppose, in a sense, I was doing international education. I had moved from England to Nigeria and I was teaching mathematics. But doing that made me sit up and think about the way in which British education was organised It was rather similar in Nigeria, but there were distinct differences as well. So for me, comparative education is about uh, making the unfamiliar familiar and making the familiar strange a little bit. Add to that international. Now, if I was being pedantic, international means between nations. So in which case you might think that international education was exclusively about relationships between educators and policymakers in two or more different countries. And I suppose that a lot of the writing on educational borrowing and lending would fall therefore into that category. But I think international is used 
in many, many different ways. For some people, international is, is equivalent to global in some sense. And we have international organizations and we have all kinds of international exchange programs. So if we take the broader meaning of international, I think that then comparative education probably becomes subordinate to international. International is a very general category that covers analysis, it covers advocacy, and it covers action and activity. Um, add then to the mix development or development studies or international development. Well, I think for several decades now, development has usually referred to two things. It's referred to the development of education in what are known as developing countries. And at the same time, it refers to those agencies that are involved in different forms of cooperation with those countries in order to develop education for the development of society. But I like to go back to a definition that was offered by George W. Parkin, Back in the mid-1970s, uh, George Parkin was a New Zealand educator and for a brief period of time he was a visiting professor at the Institute of Education in London. And for him, comparative education was about the contribution that education makes to the development of societies everywhere in the world. So for him, development did not refer to uh, exclusive, it wasn't a matter of geography, it wasn't a matter of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He was interested in the contributions education makes to the development of society, economy, polity, uh, all over the world. So that would include in Europe. It would include um, comparisons between Germany and the US, for example. So you can see from um, what I've said so far how broad a field it is and how, how inclusive it is, mm. I think. Yeah. Eight years ago, you published this piece in Comparative Education? Compare. In Compare. Mm -hmm. uh, excuse me. And in that piece, you basically say, you know, enough of the debate about definitions. Our field has done this for, well, ever since it's become a quote-unquote field. What is comparative education? Mm. And rather, you, you argue that we should really think about shared action. Mm -hmm. What we do should be the way in which we define what our field is rather than the meanings of these words. Mm. Has that worked out in the last eight years? Do you think that the field <laughs> has moved in that direction? Um, well, clearly, if, if you look at the, the journals uh, that have been published in recent years, and I retired officially eight years ago, so I don't look at these journals um, in, in the way that I used to, but I do occasionally dip in. Um, and there's still a high degree of what I would sometimes call navel-gazing and an attempt to actually... Def I, I think it's a little bit... There's a certain irony in that sometimes these articles that reflect on the field of comparative education are often about boundary setting. Whereas for me, I mean, the, the beauty of comparative education is about boundary extension. Um, and I find it slightly ironic sometimes that one is trying to... Draw, draw distinctions um, between real comparative educationists and non-comparative educationists. I, I mean, at the same time, I do, I do see the value in reflecting on the field by those who practice in the field. Um, and I perhaps ought to say a little bit about 
the, the background to the, the piece that you referred to in Compare, because it's not a conventional journal-length article. Um, the editors of Compare were putting together a special issue to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Compare, and they invited a number of, of contributors, six or seven, I think, to write. And then they, as one always does with a journal, they put the papers out for independent review. And one of the papers that was sent to me for review um, was actually by Mark Bray, and um, I think it was probably the introductory paper giving an overview of his take on what comparative education was. And in that article, um, and I perhaps ought to have it in front of me now so that I quote it correctly, and apologies to Mark if I don't quote it uh, correctly, but he basically he referred to the subtitle of the journal Compare, which I believe is a journal of comparative and international education. And since Compare is the journal, in a sense, that belongs to the British Association of International and Comparative Education, I think he was querying why international shouldn't be placed before comparative. And um, at, at one level, this is a, a good point. I suspect, but I don't know because I wasn't involved in the naming of the journal, but I suspect that the subtitle derived from the fact that one of the predecessor organisations was called the British Comparative and International Education Society. <laughs> so in that so comparative came before I, and that's when the journal was established. So I suspect that it's just continued. But anyway, be that as it may, it just got me thinking. And so the subtitle of my little piece, which is just a commentary, really, uh, the editors, I think, decided that once they'd put the papers out for external review, um, I think some of the comments that came back on the papers prompted them to then say, well, OK, we've got our six or seven articles. Now let's invite three or four people to write short think pieces on the articles and also their take on the field. So it's a very short article and um, and that's how it how it came about. So I said in that article that we should look a little bit more carefully at both what we do together and what we want to do together in terms of the type of research that we want to do. And I I, I don't know how far we've got with that agenda. I think one of my calls was for a greater appreciation of diversity and diversity of education practices and education policies from around the world. And to some extent, the, um, the rise of the articles that are appearing um, from a younger generation written about, I think it's called Southern Theory. And I think to, to a large extent, many of these calls sort of echo some of what I was trying to um, to argue for. And indeed, I think that my call for a greater appreciation of diversity, as well as commonality, I mean, I don't see every system as so unique from every other system that they cannot be compared and um, common elements drawn out, not at all. My search would always be for similarity and, and dissimilarity, diversity and commonality, universality and specificity. I don't like the either or. I think that constantly in comparative education, you've got to be very aware of both poles of those dimensions. So what then of method? How does method, the comparative method, mm. fit into this idea of not having either ors, but having this universalism and specificity? You know, how, how does method fit in? Okay, well, I think my concern about method occurs at two different levels. 
one is that that when I moved to London uh, to the Institute of Education, I, I moved from the Institute of Development Studies, and I moved to what at that time was a Department of International and Comparative Education. But what that department was was basically a merger of two um, rather separate historical departments, each with their own history and each with their own traditions. And the comparative education group, that, who were a very small group, they, or some of their predecessors, had been very, very concerned about staking out um, a particular methodological approach to comparative education. There were, uh, you probably heard of the right of um, Edmund King and Brian Holmes. Well, Brian Holmes was in the London Institute, Edmund mm. King was in King's College. They had quite different approaches to comparative education, both of which I, I could see had value. But it seemed to me that there was a lot of argument in that particular literature about which method was superior and which method should be followed and which method uh, the students should follow. Coming from the other side, and I had come from an Institute of Development Studies and stepped into what was then called the Department of International and Comparative Education, but that, the, the part that dealt with developing countries previously had been called Education in Developing Countries. Mm. And colleagues in that group, and I was part of that subgroup, um, were not nearly so concerned about the, all these methodological papers. So I think I felt at that time that method was getting in the way of the content of inquiry. The other methodological dispute, if you like, that has exercised me from time to time is what has become quite a major dispute in the social sciences, certainly in Britain, between those who promote what they call qualitative analysis and those who promote quantitative analysis. And I, I value both. And for me, it depends very much on what you're trying to find out. So it's in that sense that I say it's your problem that from which your choice of method should be made. Yeah, methods are tools that you use to answer the research question that you That's pose. Right. But you will be aware from discussions with a lot of research students that they struggle with this greatly. Mm -hmm. And for some students uh, doing research, whether it's comparative research or non-comparative research, they feel that doing research is doing a case study or doing a survey, right? Now, okay, they need to know and they need to find out about those, those methods or those tools. But the much more challenging question for them is, why do you choose that method or that method? Right. Or why not think about using both methods but in, in series? You can use a qualitative approach for the first phase of your work, followed by a quantitative survey, or vice versa. And some of some people who um, or researchers who combine the methods you know, often often produce um, very 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 fine work. And when I say combine, I think again, um, it's it's very you know combination is a is a warm word. It's a comforting word. It's like interdisciplinarity. Or we'll you know we'll have a interdisciplinary approach to this problem. But there are points at which, in fact, you do have to draw boundaries and you have to say, well, OK, in, the, in this research, at this first stage of the research, I think it is best approached through qualitative means, which might be uh, unstructured interviews with people, with teachers, with students about a range of issues so that you elicit from them what they consider to be the most salient 
um, dimensions mm -hmm. of a particular problem, at a later stage, you may move that into a survey questionnaire, because at that point, you might be one asking questions about how many or how much or what percentage. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you ask those questions, you're talking about a quantitative approach. Now, I think the difficulty for students is that sometimes they are fed this quantitative versus versus quality. As if they have to choose. As if they have to choose. But then if they then move to a phase where they realize they can use both, the danger then is that they do neither properly. <laughs> they fall between the two stools. And I think that actually students who use both approaches, they possibly have a more difficult time because they have to master what that approach is. They have mm -hmm. to do the work properly. Right. They have to do it with scholarship. And, and in a four-year PhD program, yeah. I mean, yeah. how do you actually yeah. become an expert in two yeah. very different ways yeah. of doing research? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... So, you, you know, it used to be, there used to be a shorthand used by, by some of my colleagues in Britain. You know, are you a quant or are you a qual? Meaning, are you a quantitative researcher or a qualitative researcher and I, I, I used to just back off at that mm. point and, and, and say look it's really not helpful. Fortunately there are a few pieces of writing in the literature that very helpfully draw out the distinctions not I would say within our comparative education field but in, in other fields they're, they're in, in the if you like the comparative social sciences you will find that. So another big issue beyond method in comparative education mm. and the name of comparative <laughs> education, the meaning. Mm. The Another issue that I, I guess, being in the field for just about a decade now, uh, I've noticed is that comparative educationalists, those who go through that academic trajectory, often end up working in development agencies or ministries of education or, you know, all sorts of NGOs, nonprofits, and then even the academics who are professors of comparative education often do work with these same groups over their career. So they sort of have their foot in the world of practice and theory at the mm -hmm. same time. They're a practitioner, but they're also an academician uh, uh, in the academy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you think scholars should balance this role of the ability to analyze issues of comparative education, but then also participate in particular advocacy for education? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, and I suppose I am one of those who has had her feet in, in both camps um, in, in, in a variety of, of ways. I think for those who move on from comparative and international education into a full-time position, in an international organization uh, or in an, uh, in an international NGO or um, a national NGO, I think within that organization, they need to be strong to request time for analysis. I know that in some international organizations, the, the pace of the, the discourse and all the, the funding imperatives are so, it's so rapid that the, um, that the priority list of, you know, what is it today, um, changes very rapidly. And I think sometimes there's just no time for the analysis. If they cannot do the analysis themselves, or they don't feel they've got the time to do the analysis, I think they need to cultivate around them a group of people. They could be consultants. 
they might even be mentors, I'm not sure, who do have the time, who continue to have the time for analysis. And those are people who are still in universities. So I think that it's hard if you move out of the field into a full-time position into one of these advocacy and action organisations. If you are fortunate, very fortunate, in being able to continue with a university job and at the same time then are being invited to get involved in advocacy, I think you're in a different position. I think that you still have, the academy still has the opportunity for some amount of time for considered analysis, for sabbatical leave, for contributing to referee journal articles. And I think one has to recognise the privilege of that position Mm. and value it and not allow any, quotes, research time to be frittered away on advocacy and action work. It's very tempting because the advocacy world and the action world is in many ways very exciting, very stimulating. And also it gives you an entree to discourses that you might not otherwise have access to if you were in your ivory tower, as it were. So I think uh, analysis versus advocacy, um, I make that distinction quite strongly. I make it to my research students as well, because um, I don't know whether you've had this experience, but I have had in the past some, maybe not many, but some research students who know the answer to their question before they've even addressed it. So they know what, what they recommend. They know what they want to recommend, and they haven't yet done the study. Now, in this case, the advocacy is um, in front of the analysis. And it's very, very hard in some cases to persuade students that they just need to forget about the recommendations and step backwards. Now, a PhD over three or four years, I think for many people, including I think many academics, is one of the most privileged privileged times of your life because you really do have time to read, you have time to analyse, you have time to think. And if you get through that period and you've mastered um, a variety of skills and you've developed a set of attitudes to education in the world, I think it places you in a very, very good position, even if you then move into a full-time uh, job where, it, where it's full of advocacy and, and, and action and getting on with spending money. It's a tough one. I think that the, the other point I would make is that I would hope that if you have studied comparative and international education, that you retain a critical stance on many of the assertions which come out of international organizations. International organizations have their own, they have their own needs, they have their own, they, they need to legitimize themselves, they need funding, they need to keep moving, and they need to keep processing or reprocessing messages. And they often make grand claims about X leads to Y in most of the world, and therefore it should X should lead to Y in the rest of the world. Now, if you've done comparative and international education, in principle, you've got access to the resources that would enable you to, to test that proposition. And with the internet now, you've got even more access to the resources. So I would say to people, just keep that critical hat on. It must be hard for some to keep that critical hat on when they end up working in development agencies that are trying to push their model the best way to do this type of learning or solve this type of educational problem. I would would imagine that they're sort of bound 
by the need to advocate for that quote-unquote solution being offered. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can just see how that might be very challenging to to stay critical. Mm. Uh, you you want to be critical, but at the same time, your job is telling you, yeah. that regardless of the circumstances, you have to say that this model is right. Okay, I accept the constraint of that situation. At the same time, I would say, take every opportunity you can to attend conferences, and much more than that, take every opportunity you can to present your work at conferences, knowing that if members of the some members of the academy are there, they may be quite critical of what you're doing. But use that critique to help you to reflect. Perhaps don't rely on yourself and your peers to do all that self-reflection. Most organizations do have periods of time for in-service training or continuous professional development. And some organizations, and DFID actually, and this is the Department for International Development, in recent years has been really quite good in encouraging um, many of its staff to attend, for example, the UCFIAT conference, the United Kingdom Forum for International Education and Training. And those of us who have been um, in that forum for a very long time, since its inception, we're always very pleased when members of development agencies come and participate with us and where sometimes they request space for a panel to talk about their latest position paper and sometimes it is possible to give them that space Um, and they know that a critique there'll be a lot of questions but as members of the academy I think we try not to do that we try to critique in a in a way which Mm. is constructive not not destructive and I I think sometimes it might be quite threatening for people to do that but um, we also have to remember that, of course, many of the people who work in the development organizations are our former students. So there is already, there's already a, a degree of trust there. Right. And there's already an experience of analysis and, and academic life. Uh, which, and I think that's very, that's very positive. Mm-hmm. So you wrote that piece in Compare eight mm-hmm. years ago, looking at these, <laughs> the main challenges to the field at that time. Mm-hmm. I know you, you, you said you retired around that same time that you published that piece. Mm. But if you were to look at the field today, yeah. what would the main challenges be, the ones you see today? And are they different from the ones you saw eight years ago? I think that today, even over that short space of time of eight years, I think the amount of information which is available on the Internet, I mean, it has just exploded. So students actually have no excuse now when they <laughs> when they used to come along and say, I can't find that report, I can't find this, I can't find that. Um, if they're looking for reports that have been produced from these so-called international agencies, there's no excuse. Most of that stuff is on the net. Where I think it's still problematic in some countries is ga- gaining access to what we might call the grey the gray literature, the grey policy literature, within countries because a lot of that is not made available on the internet and also of course historical material and for that you just have to search you have to do old style searching sitting in archives and going through the material in terms of the approach to problems you drew my attention to a couple of writings uh, on what might be generally termed southern southern theory and i think Perhaps eight years ago, um, I mean, that was beginning to take off. 
I think there's more of that around in 2018 than I might have predicted in 2010. And I think on balance, that's very, very positive. Um, as I said before, I think it, it feeds into my predilection for the study of, of diversity. Where I'm just a little bit, I would wish to be a little bit cautious about some of that writing because some of it is imbued with the language of racism. And I find that that's tough. Mm. I think that when you have worked in a field for 45 years and when you have seen and been part of changing the, creating a much more diverse um, staffing profile, for example, in, in a department that you've been associated with for two or three decades, change is slow, but you have, one has seen change, considerable amount of change. I think some of the language of the those who call for Southern theory and a counter-hegemony, in effect, is um, I, I, I think the language needs to be considered carefully if we are to move towards a comparative and international education field which is truly inclusive. There's a certain danger that what is being called the Northern hegemony certain danger that the call is to replace it with a southern hegemony. I don't buy buy into that, partly because I'm not sure that I buy into all of the caricature of the northern hegemony anyway. But I do, I think that those who are calling for a greater level of contribution from those who know systems in the, in the so-called south from the inside and who are themselves extremely good scholars, to see a greater contribution only to be uh, welcomed and invited. Nearly 20 years ago now, I undertook an analysis of the articles which had appeared in comparative education over the previous 20-year period. The year 2000 was when comparative education was doing yet another set of reflections <laughs> on the condition of the field. Um, and what I did was an analysis of, of these Oh, about four or five hundred articles. Um, and I was interested in uh, the four C's, context, content, comparison and contributors. So the question of content was addressed to George Parkin's issue about, mm. about geography. And I found a pretty good spread of countries that were addressed in the articles. Content was what was the problem area that the articles were, were, were addressing. And that was incredibly diverse incredibly diverse. I mean, everything from higher education to language policy to pedagogy to the relations between education and development, very, very wide. The third area was comparison. Now, this one was very interesting because I took my cue from Parkin and some of the comparative educators before him, um, and perhaps working from maybe even Candell's position I was looking for articles which compared two or more countries. Mm. And actually, I found that the vast majority of articles were only focused on one country. And I felt, for me, that didn't devalue them. I just felt that if they were articles that were going to appear in a comparative education journal, they needed to be written with another author, maybe who had been looking at something similar in another country. I think that single country studies are absolutely essential 
for comparison. I don't think you can compare until you've done a proper study of two countries or a team has done a proper scholarly study of the countries that they purport to compare. Because I think there's a great danger otherwise that your comparisons become very, very surface level. Okay, so that was compare, the, the comparison dimension. And the fourth dimension was contributors. And I found that there was a very heavy concentration of the contributors in northern institutions. Now, they themselves may well have been from the South. They may have done their PhDs in the South, but they had migrated to institutions in the North. Now, I think one of the challenges we have in the development of the collective development of higher education around the world is how can we find ways of distributing mm. the skills of comparative and international education more equally across the globe so that in turn those who have the skills can work in diverse parts of the world to develop scholarship in, in, in those parts of the world. Because if there is this continued migra migration to the institutions in, in North America and Europe. And when I say the South, I rather exclude Australia and New Zealand because, mm -hmm. and I think they would exclude themselves from what <laughs> is referred to as the South, though perhaps not, in, not entirely perhaps. But if, if people are migrating, if academics are migrating to the good centers and departments of international mm -hmm. comparative education, I think that worries me for the field. It doesn't worry me for the individuals. The individuals are making very, very rational individual decisions. But I, I worry for the next generations of scholars from those countries who wish to stay in, not, not to stay in their country, but who wish to do comparative education in other countries, but then who wish to contribute to comparative educa international education in their country. And in a way, that would contribute to this idea of Southern theory. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Angela Little, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It was really a pleasure to talk. Thank you very much. Angela Little is Professor Emerita at the Institute of Education, University of London. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>